0: Would you pray with me once again? Father, we come to you now. Um, And Lord, I come to you uh, along with the people here uh, asking that you would teach us by your word, uh, Lord, that with each passing Thursday and Sunday, with each passing week that we gather, Lord, we could sing these songs with greater confidence that this we know with all our hearts, that the wounds of Christ have paid our ransom, uh, and that Uh, The work of salvation is finished, it is accomplished, Uh, and you've prepared good works for us to walk in in light of the salvation that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. God, we pray that you speak to us through your word now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat. Y'all are much closer than normal. I'll try and spit less. So if you've got your Bibles, do me a favor, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through to 18. And if you don't happen to have a Bible by chance, uh, there's a bookshelf in the back by our book table. All the book things are grouped together. Uh, and there's Bibles there that if you don't own uh, a copy of the Old and New Testament, we'd love to just give that to you. That is our gift to you. Uh, but if maybe you just forgot it, uh, then follow along on the screen with me uh, this evening if you've been with us the last few weeks, then we have you know that we've been sort of tracing Paul's thought through 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, and he begins this passage of Scripture by making the statement that, that he does not lose heart, that he has not lost heart. Uh, he says we, it's sort of the apostolic we. He's talking about himself and the people that he's working with. And he gives a couple reasons as to why he and those with him haven't lost heart. Uh, one of those reasons is that He has this ministry given to him, one that he is gonna later call the ministry of reconciliation. God has charged him with a task, and he cannot give up in light of the task that he has been given. Another thing that sustains him in the midst of pain and suffering and brokenness and persecution is the mercy of God. It's this ministry he's been given by God's mercy that carries him. He turns his attention to really... Um, the heart of the Christian life, the heart of the Christian message. He sort of shifts and takes this detour from what it is that keeps him from losing heart, and he starts to talk about what is the heart of the Christian faith. And he says that it is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the treasure of Christianity. Contrary to popular belief and opinion, it's not five steps to a better marriage, uh, it's not a uh, good structure so your kids don't grow up to be serial killers or something crazy. Um, the heart of the Christian message, the great treasure of Christianity, at least according to Paul, is that we know God. That there is the knowledge of God that comes with the gospel of Jesus. And he says that treasure, that knowledge, God has put in jars of clay, which is sort of his metaphorical way of talking about human weakness, that God has taken this glorious cosmic reality and put it in frail, fragile, broken people. He's gone on and sort of uh, given what are called the paradoxes of brokenness. He, He talks about being pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. If you grew up in the 90s, that's like the verse of some real popular worship song, Uh, That's probably by jars of clay, I don't know. And so that might sound familiar to you, but really all he's doing is unpacking how weak he truly is, that he finds himself pressed, he finds himself persecuted, he finds himself struck down, and he comes back from the detour in our text for tonight. He comes back to the topic of what it is that in the midst of all this weakness and pain, what is it that keeps him from losing heart what is it that keeps his hand to the plow that keeps him running the race and so we come to this text second corinthians 4:13 through 18 paul says this since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written i believed and uh, i believed and so i spoke we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the lord jesus As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Stephen Stow, who's one of our life group leaders, he and I have sort of made this blood pact that we're going to get in shape. Uh, Stephen, like, used to be in the military, and I, I think he was special forces. So he's getting back in shape. I'm just getting in shape for the first time ever. Um, And so we made this commitment. So I've been waking up every morning at like 5.30 to go to the gym. It's horrible. Um, And I've, I've been foregoing my beloved checkers for like chicken breast and brown rice. And I realize that there's some of you in here who that just delights you to no end, right? You love going to the gym, and you love meal planning, and you love meal prep and all that stuff. I think you're a sadist, and that sounds demonic to me that anybody would revel in this. But I realize that some people are into it. It's not fun for me. I don't like it. Uh, and there have been, this is just me pouting in a sermon, I guess. Um, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy it. And, and so there have been numerous moments of weakness in the two or so weeks that I've been attempting this. And so I've developed something of a system as to how I combat that weakness, and it doesn't always work. But, but what I've done when I'm at my apartment and the call of the number one Big Buford combo goes forth from the checkers on Hillsboro, um, what I do is I go to my closet I open the door, and I just go through all the shirts that I'll be able to wear at the end of this journey once I've lost some weight. And so I just sort of thumb through it. And normally, the, the thought that there is, there is something at the end of this agony that is worthwhile is what keeps me going. Now, I realized very quickly when my car just mysteriously ended up in the drive-thru one night that I don't have that incentive when I'm in my car. So I started taking pictures of the shirts that I would like to fit into. And every once in a while, I'll set them as the background on my phone or when I'm driving and I'm in a stoplight and I see that, oh, McDonald's is running a special. I'll pull up my phone and I'll just thumb through the shirts to remind myself that there is hope at the end of this dark tunnel that is the last two weeks. This sounds so much worse than it actually is. I'm just going to the gym. But the reality is that the human heart is set up in such a way that we can endure very long periods of pain and agony and frustration and suffering so long as we know that there is an end to it and that in the end there is something waiting for us that will make it worthwhile. You and I... Well, not you and I, but rather perhaps some of us in this room have experienced this in the context of relationships. You've spent days, weeks, months, years in the friend zone, hoping that one day that friend zone will turn into something more, and that that friendship will turn the corner and become something more than just friends. Or perhaps you've seen this in a more painful way, and you've spent week in and week out in waiting rooms, waiting for a more positive diagnosis. In the hopes that one day, at the end of all of these tomorrows, things will go back to the way that they were before. It's that hope that there is an end to suffering, and it's that hope that there is something at the end that will make it worthwhile, that carries us through. And I've noticed that there is this trend in the West. It doesn't seem to be the case so much, at least in the couple weeks I spent in Uganda, but there's this trend in the West that we are really pragmatic when it comes to our learning. If, I, if what you are telling me and teaching me can't be put into practice tomorrow, I want nothing to do with it. Time is money. You're wasting my time. And this is sort of bled into pulpits to where even I feel this pressure when I preach from Scripture to preach for immediate application. I need to pull something out of this text for you to do when you get in your car tonight or when you go to work or class or hang out with your boyfriend or girlfriend tomorrow. There is this temptation to preach for immediate, pragmatic application. Now, that's not bad. I mean, the Lord makes this promise that his word will not return void, uh, he, he makes promises that his word is effective, that we will not leave unchanged by our encounters with it. So it's not that it's bad, but there is an incompleteness to it. Because for Paul, what I think we'll see tonight is that what carries him through his tomorrows is the recognition that one day they will come to an end and that there is something at the end that will make all of his pain worthwhile. What carries Paul is not two or three ways to change his life tomorrow. It is the recognition that at the end of all of his tomorrows, there is something waiting that makes all that he experiences worth every bit of the agony that he has endured. And so he begins his description of his hope and the reason he has not lost heart with a quotation from Psalms 116. Verse 13, he says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. He's quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and so um, there's a slight verbiage difference because Paul is quoting the Greek translation. You may think that you're unfamiliar with this psalms, but actually, Katie was so kind as to read it for us at the beginning of worship, so we have all heard it now, whether we remember it or not. And Paul's expectation, when he takes these three or four words from the psalms uh, from the psalm and puts it in his letter, his expectation is that those who are hearing and reading this letter will know the full context of the psalm, because when you look at the rest of the psalm, there is this isolated line, "I believed and so I spoke." But the rest of the psalm is about somebody in the midst of agony and misery and frustration. There's these glorious pessimistic lines like, all of mankind are liars. And sometimes I'm sure you felt that way. Maybe going through a breakup or any other number of difficulties. There, there's these lines about being crushed and your soul being dragged down to, to the point of death and shield and suffering. And so the psalmist is saying in the midst of all of this, I believe. And so I Speak. And what Paul is saying in taking these three or four words is he's saying the same spirit that caused the psalmist to believe in the midst of pain and continue to speak is the spirit at work in my ministry that upholds me in my belief and enables me to continue to speak even though things are difficult. Now, this is not the, the primary point of the passage, but it's worth noting that there is a correlation here between what you believe and how you act between belief and speaking. I majored in religious studies at USF. That was a trip. I don't totally recommend it to anyone. If you've taken some classes, then, then I'm sure you know. But but one of the things that they sort of talk about within the first few of your classes towards your major is the difference between orthodoxy and orthoproxy. Uh, orthodoxy is... Issues concerning correct belief, that we believe the right things. Orthoproxy is the question of correct practice, that we do the right things. And I know a tendency in my own heart is to think that my orthodoxy is the be-all, end-all of my Christian faith. And I know that the tendency in our day and age is, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. He's the Son of God. He died for my sins. Leave me alone about what I do with my weekends, Leave me alone about what I do when the door is closed. Leave me alone about the nature of my relationship with the person that I'm dating. Leave me alone about what you heard about what I did on Friday night in Ybor City. But for Paul and for the psalmist, there is not that line between what you believe and what you do. There is not a distinction between your orthodoxy, your beliefs about God, and your orthopraxy, your speaking. I believed, and because I believed, I spoke. I believe these things, and because I believe, I act. So if you find yourself in this room as the sort of Christian whose faith and whose belief has never moved you to speak, it's never moved you to act, it's never moved you to repent, it's never moved you to greater holiness, that is a dangerous place to be. And I would urge you to examine yourself because that should concern you. It is entirely possible, I think, to do Christian things without believing, but I do not think it is possible to truly believe without acting. When the, when the Protestant uh, reformers talk about justification by faith alone, there's a common misunderstanding that when, when we say we're justified by faith and not by works, that, that that means you can believe and do whatever you want, but they were really careful to qualify that. You are justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. The sort of faith that saves is the sort of faith that moves you to act. You believe, and so you speak. So what is it that Paul believes that causes him to speak? Well, he goes on. He says, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The temptation, I think, when we hear this is to sort of squash down what Paul's saying and go, oh, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about dying and going to heaven. Paul believes that if somebody kills him for what he's saying or if finally he has, um, he's endured too much and his body gives out, that, that he'll be raised and go to heaven. And so he can keep speaking knowing that there's hope beyond death. Now, Paul believes that. And he's actually going to go on a little bit later in chapter 5, and the very common phrase, the absent with the body, present with the Lord, that's, that's coming out of Second Corinthians. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is not talking about dying and going to heaven as being the fuel for his speaking and his acting and his um, faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Now, Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead. And that might sound sort of unfamiliar to you because when we talk about um, the hope of the Christian, we normally just talk about dying and going to heaven. And that is a reality that we are absent with the body and present with the Lord. But that is not really what the New Testament terminates on. We read from Revelation 21 during worship, the New Testament doesn't end with us being disembodied and taken away. It ends with the soul's of those who have loved Christ being reunited in glorified bodies, in restored bodies, in resurrected bodies in a new heavens and a new earth and what was lost in the fall being renewed. It is life after life after death, as one theologian put it. And this might sound strange to us because we're used to thinking the end game is die and go to heaven. I assure you that that's not what the New Testament teaches. The end game is new heavens, new earth. Paul's actually talked to the Corinthians before about this issue of the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he makes this statement. He talks about um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, he says, "...as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn." Christ, the firstfruits. And then at his coming, those who belong to him. To make sense of this statement and what what it means for the resurrection that Paul is hoping in and and the resurrection that's fueling his ministry, uh, we have to recognize something that that I don't know that we always get. And it's that Jesus' resurrection is not the exclamation point at the end of his ministry. Jesus' resurrection is a semicolon. And I had to Google this to make sure I got it right because I'm bad with grammar. But the semicolon is the continuation of a related thought, whereas an exclamation point ends a statement. Am I right, grammar people? Yes? Yeah, okay, cool. Illustration holds up. Awesome. So the resurrection is not an exclamation point, at least not, not simply an exclamation point. It is the beginning of something greater. Jesus' ministry does not end with the resurrection. Paul uses this term, first fruits" to describe Christ being raised. And that sounds strange to us because we don't use this terminology. But in the Old Testament... There is laws about harvest and what happens with the first fruits of a harvest. And so in the ancient world, especially in the nation of Israel, the first fruits that came from the harvest of a field that a person in Israel owned, those fruits would be taken and they would be offered to the Lord as a sacrifice. Now you might hear that and you go, well, if people are growing their own food, that sounds a little risky. You take the first fruits and you offer them up and you just, I guess, hope for the second fruits. But, agriculturally speaking, when the first fruit ripens, it is a near assurance that the rest of the field will ripen with it. And so, Paul divides humanity into two categories those who are in Adam and who will die like Adam, and those who are in Christ who will be raised like Christ. perhaps an analogy that helps us make sense of this is what happens when you buy fruit from the supermarket. I don't know if you've done this before. I did it once or twice. I realize that I forget that there's fruit there until I smell it and it's all rotting. So I stop buying fruit. But what tends to happen is there's one or two pieces within a bowl that start to go bad. And if you don't take those pieces out, everything else in the bowl starts to go bad along with it. And what Paul essentially says is that for us being found in Adam... When Adam died, the whole batch was spoiled. And so as long as we continue to be found in Adam, there is only the expectation of death for you and I. As Adam died, all die. But if we are found in Christ, if we are united to him by faith, then just as Christ was raised, he is the first fruits of the resurrection of all of his people. And Paul is certain of this resurrection because we are of the same field and if Jesus was raised, his people will be raised with him. Some of you were baptized here in this ministry. I don't know how other churches do this, but if you were baptized here and if I was the one that baptized you, there are two things that happened. I guess three. One, I made sure you were a Christian before we even agreed to this. Um, That's kind of my job. Two, I asked you a question as we stood in the baptismal. I asked you to make a profession of faith. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was crucified for your sins and raised for your justification? And just so you know, if if any of you had told me no at that point, we would have called the whole thing off. Uh, So if you thought that would be like a ha-ha funny joke, it, it wouldn't be funny. I wouldn't laugh. So I ask you this question, and if you say yes at that profession, then we dunk you. And there's a phrase that I repeat every single time. Buried with Christ in his death. Raised to walk in newness of life. And that being raised to walk in newness of life, that's not just a metaphor for a spiritual reality. That is pointing to a physical reality at the end of time. That you have died with Christ. And if you have died with Christ, you will be raised like Christ. What difference does this make? How is it that that this fuels Paul on towards ministry? Well, ultimately the reason that Jesus can go to the cross and embrace the cross is because he has this hope of the resurrection. He knows that he will be raised. And by the same token, the people of Christ can pick up their cross and they can walk into suffering and pain and agony and persecution and frustration knowing that because Christ was raised, We too shall be raised. And so Paul says, I do not lose heart. I will carry my cross to the end because Christ was raised, and so too will I be. And ultimately, what this says is that death does not have the final word in the life of a Christian. If the end game of the Christian life was to die and go to heaven, I'm sorry to break it to you death has the final word because you are dead. If it was only a spiritual resurrection that we were carried off into heaven, then it would mean nothing for Christ to be raised bodily. But he is not raised spiritually, he is raised bodily. And so what this says to Paul and to you and to I is that death does not have the final say in God's good but corrupted creation. We're very fond uh, in our funeral services of quoting Paul talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. We stand over caskets and we say things like, oh, death, where is your sting? I just want to tell you that's a stupid thing to say at a funeral. Because the answer to your question is in the casket in front of you. The sting of death is the six year old girl who's died of cancer. The sting of death is the 45 year old husband who's left his family behind due to a car accident. The sting of death is the mother who's left her children behind due to depression and suicide. The answer to that question, oh death, where is your sting? is it's in the casket in front of you. When Paul makes that statement, oh death, where is your sting? He is talking about the resurrection of the body, that one day Christ. People will be raised bodily. And the bodies of the saints that were sown in brokenness and weakness and frailty will be raised in glory and honor and power, just as the Son of God was. And on that day, Paul says, we will all say, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? It's been swallowed up. And so Paul takes this truth. He says, I believe this, and so I speak. You can do whatever you want to me, because I know that in the end, this body that you have sown into the ground in weakness will be raised in power just as the Son of God was. He goes on, and he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is a man who was pretty prominent in the, the parliament of Britain. He was a businessman who was a devout Christian named Frederick K. Catherwood. And he recounts uh, an instance in which he was sitting down with a very prominent scientist uh, in Europe who was a well-known atheist. He was an outspoken naturalist. And they were having a conversation about the gospel and about scripture and about what it meant to be saved. And they went back and forth and they had their sort of friendly debate and discussion. And in the end, he remained a Christian. Uh, and then the atheist remained an atheist. And several years passed by. And Frederick Catherwood encountered that same man again, and that man had been given a grim prognosis, and he was on the verge of death. And he recounts it in this way. He recounts the experience, saying, I saw the same man in the library of our club, a gaunt, gloomy, silent figure, hunched over the fire, staring into nothing, face to face with oblivion. When I left the club sometime later, he was standing in the rain without a coat, I offered him a lift, he told me not to bother. He had come to the end and nothing seemed to matter anymore. And I think that Paul here in this text where he says that our outer self is being wasted away, he puts his finger to the pulse of something that the naturalist, the materialist, the atheist recognizes. And I think that all of us in our moments of honesty recognize we are wasting away. And I don't say that to be grim or to be bleak, but I look at pictures of myself a year ago, and there's significantly less hair than there is now, and I comb my hair, and I notice significantly more grays, and perhaps you have noticed, too, that piece by piece by piece, you are wasting away, and if our hope is in this life only, we should be pitied. In death, the materialist loses everything because that's all that there ever was to have. But for the Christian, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day by day. Paul does not simply talk about the outer man and the inner man uh, as sort of a, a way of talking about the fact that we get old and get wrinkly and get fat and get gray hairs. Because for Paul, when he talks about the outer and inner man, he's also referring to the old way of things. He says that the outer man is wasting away, and for him, this is a metaphor for everything that came with Adam and his cursed race. The things that were under Adam are wasting away. But inwardly, the things that will last, that will survive into the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of the dead, these things are being renewed day by day by day if the outer man is all there is, then we should despair at the face of death. But if that is not all there is, then there is hope beyond the caskets that fill our cemeteries. And he goes on and says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you've been here since the beginning of this series, and perhaps you'll remember this. Earlier on in Paul's letter, uh, specifically in the first few chapters of chapter or the first few verses of chapter ones, chapter one, there's only one one, he makes this statement. Um, he says, "We we do not want you to be ill-informed, brothers, of the affliction that we faced in Asia." we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. And I, I don't know if I, remem- if I mentioned this several weeks ago or not when we walked through it, but the language that Paul uses here is actually nautical language. Uh, when he talks about being burdened uh, to the point that we despair of life itself, he's using sort of seafaring imagery. He's ta- essentially drawing a picture for his readers of a boat that has been so weighed down that it cannot stay above the waves. In chapter 1 Paul describes his afflictions as something that have sunk him down to the very bottom of the sea of despair. And in chapter 4 he takes that picture and he turns it upside down on its head. And he says that these are light momentary afflictions that are preparing for us not the weight of suffering but the weight of glory. What could possibly cause him to change his mind within 4 chapters? So I was in Uganda over the summer and I, I've pretty much grown up in Brandon or Tampa my whole life. And so the only time I've ever been out in the wilderness has been in the woods where you can't actually see the stars or the sky or anything like that, or in the city where you still can't see the stars or the sky or anything. But in Uganda, they don't have street lights and the trees aren't as tall as they are on the Appalachian Trail. And I was just astounded at how bright the moon was. Uh, You you either walked around at night with a flashlight or by moonlight, and honestly, pretty rarely did I need a flashlight because the moon was just, it was bright. But the brightness of the moon is nothing by comparison to the glory of the sun. No matter how bright the moon might be and how impressive it might be over the skies of Gulu, it is nothing by comparison to the glory of the sun. And in chapter one, Paul considers his sufferings on their own, and they are enough to crush him. But in chapter 4, the text that we are in, Paul considers his sufferings by comparison to what lies at the end of his tomorrows, and they become nothing. The weight that once sunk the ship of his spirit is light, and the weight that sinks him now is the very glory of what God has prepared for him. In the resurrection of the dead, in the return of Christ, in the day when his faith is made sight, he says, in light of that, everything I am experiencing now is light and small and insignificant. Man, I can't give you an application for this tomorrow. I don't know what you do with this when you get in your car. This is not simply a truth to know in your mind. This is a truth to live in light of, that whatever you are struggling with right now, whether it is depression or sickness or despair or the loss of people you love, I think Paul says to all of us the same thing, that compared to the weight of glory, these afflictions are light. They don't seem that way. But he says, in light of eternity, of what is at the end of our tomorrows, these things are light and they are small. So this is my appeal to you, that you, in your suffering and in your struggles, would not lose heart, though outwardly you are wasting away. But instead, you would fix your eyes on the weight of, of the glory of the resurrection, and you would sink deeper into the grace and the mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just come to you confessing that I have missed the mark of this text so many times. That I look at small, petty things, even even in light of day-to-day life, and I find them to be too much to bear, I very rarely look to the weight of glory that is coming at Christ's return. God, I pray for myself and for all those like me who have fixed our eyes on what is seen and despaired in light of it. God, turn our hearts towards what is unseen, what is eternal, what is weightier than the heaviest of our troubles and our sorrows. Lord, may we always and ever live in light of the weight of the glory that you have prepared for us and that you have assured us of in the life, the death, and most of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask that the Holy Spirit takes these truths and binds them to our hearts and gives us the strength to live by them. We ask this in Jesus' name.